welcome back to Word Up with Danny Katz. I am your host, Danny Katz. I am an author, journalist, and a quantum languaging coach and consultant. What that means is that I teach people how language programs consciousness, how language programs reality at large, and how to transform reality and evolve our consciousness with language. I've also been known to cultivate and share an opinion or two or 12 about culture and consciousness and how they are evolving, devolving, and being manipulated by the powers that were. Here at Word Up, we are devoted to fostering critical thinking while supporting you in becoming your most authentic, empowered, liberated, realized, amazing version of yourself. Our every show aims to expand your consciousness, raise your frequency, sharpen your critical thinking skills, and make you giggle. (laughs) And think. Given the radical uptick in censorship over the past few years, combined with the complete co-opting slash decimation of my own personal industry, journalism, I started Word Up to have a free speech-friendly platform in which to engage exploratory, solutions-based conversations with visionaries, mystics, original thinkers, and rebel badasses who are helping to make the world more wonderful. The first half of my interviews run between 30 to 90 minutes and are always posted here for free public listening. The second halves are reserved for paid supporters on my Patreon and my Locals platforms, where for as little as $5 a month, you can access all of my second half conversations along with oodles of other bonus content and opportunities to drop in with me, to drop in with our High Vibe tribe, and lots of other awesome things. In addition to interviews, Word Up also features quantum languaging upgrades, planetary service announcements, and propaganda analysis, which I call Spot the Propaganda. Thank you so much for tuning in and for sharing your sacred attention with me and our high vibe tribe of change makers. Be sure to click that subscribe button so you can stay abreast of our every episode. Thank you for also clicking the like button, for sharing far and wide, and for leaving some kind words as a review as you are authentically inspired. As well, if you are gleaning any value whatsoever from these shows, consider supporting me on Locals and or Patreon. And as you are wanting to learn more about my quantum languaging coaching and consulting services or nab copies of my books, find me on dannycats.com as well as on quantumlanguaging.com. Okay, I think that's it for our housekeeping. Buckle up and prepare to enjoy this episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Hey, superstars, welcome back to another episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Today I am joined by psychedelic writer, researcher, and author Vincent Rado. If you tune into my podcast that I do with Emily Moyer, then you'll know that we had Vincent on maybe like, a, well, I don't know the timing, but we had Vincent on to discuss some of the psychedelic opportunistic ops going on in Ukraine. I was first introduced to Vincent through our mutual friend, Robert Forte, and I wanted to have Vincent on to start to walk us through the op 
that is psychedelic culture in America, um, which as as we know from the series that Emily, Emily and I have done with Robert Forte, that the psychedelic movement in the United States is anything but organic, but was ever and always an op that was backed by the elites, uh, military industrial complex, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to have Vincent on to help bring us up to speed as to how the military industrial complex has been using psychedelics um, to control the population, to socially engineer us, to make a lot of money, all of those things. Vincent is his breadth of knowledge on the subject as well as on American politics, um, world history is pretty phenomenal. And I just am in awe of how he weaves it all together to shed light on what seems like a counterculture movement, but really is anything but. Before we dive into today's freaking awesome episode with Vincent, I am reminding you to click that subscribe button, to like, to share, to comment. Your comments go a long way in nudging me ever higher in algorithmic hierarchy, thus giving me more reach. Um, as well, why don't you go ahead and click the notification bell? Because that way you will be notified every time I drop a new video, whether it's a Word Up podcast episode, a Words Are Matter video, which features, you know, quantum languaging insights, planetary service announcement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You will be notified. And still, that being said, Google sometimes is a little bit afraid of me um, and the powerful content that I share. So they don't always necessarily let folks know when I drop something. Um, so just to be on the super safe side, I recommend signing up for my newsletter at dannycats.com. When you sign up, you will get a free PDF, five quantum languaging hacks for instant empowerment. That's right, I did say instant empowerment. I never share your information. I send out newsletters very rarely, only when I have value to share, offers to put into your field. Um, it's a great way to keep up with my book launch, live events, um, all of which are happening right now. Oh. Um, all of which are happening right now. So last piece, um, this podcast, like most of my podcasts, is split into two halves. So the first half is free for the public on all of the audio podcast platforms, as well as a bunch, as well as a bunch of alternative audio podcast platforms. It is available in video format on YouTube and on my locals page. Uh, the second half is reserved for my paying supporters on both Locals and Patreon. So links are below. Choose the platform of your choice. And for as little as $5 a month, you will get access to all of my second half podcast conversations. If you are someone who is interested in the podcast that I do with Emily Moyer, because that one is super spicy and gets us majorly censored, that whole podcast is behind a paywall. So if you're interested, you can sign up for that at wordspodcast.locals.com 
or it is available for all of my personal $10 and up supporters on Locals and on Patreon. So just, I just share that so that as you're choosing, you know, your tiers of support for me, know that $5 is the minimum to get access to my second half conversations. $10 gets you access to words podcast that I do with Emily Moyer. Okay, I think that does it for housekeeping um buckle up and prepare to enjoy my conversation with vincent rado i'm fascinated by how you know what you know and how you got into this realm of research and writing. Right, yeah. Um, if you'd like, I could talk more about like some of my personal background, I guess. Yeah. Um, so uh, I was born just outside of DC and I was raised in and around the city. Um, so I've always been around the capital, which, um, in the DC area, politics are just kind of like in the air. Sorry, do you do you mind if I just take a couple hits real quick first? I didn't. I'm sorry. I just need to stop this and start over again. Yeah, uh, no worries. Take yeah, I I really need to smoke. I'm actually a medical patient, and I haven't really had my medicine today. So if you could just give me two seconds to just take a couple hits real quick, I'm really sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Take your time. Totally. Oh, I, sorry. Yeah, this was just kind of off the record. Um, okay. Yeah, as you're open, but I'm just so curious to know how you got into this specific line of inquiry because it's so rare these days and you're so attuned um, okay. to, to the psychedelics ops. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm very curious um, as long as you're comfortable sharing how you got oh, here. Of course. Oh, for sure. Yeah, totally. I was just trying to gather my thoughts because there's so much that has happened but to keep it in a nutshell for listeners so it's easy to follow along i mean uh i really don't think there's anything special about how i got into the drugs um i say that because our entire society is conditioned to be obsessed with drugs um and that has been the the uh the norm since the beginning of the u.s really um, even back to when it was still just colonies, um, the politics, the economy, the social life has all been like drug based. So in that sense, I don't really consider myself like unique or special. Um, the only way I might be like, well, it's not even unique because there's a bunch of other people out there who have done this is um, even though uh, illegal drugs in some conversations might be taboo i decided to devote myself to them just because i thought they were interesting and i had seen there was a long history of people who had devoted their careers to drugs and they had careers um so it, it was possible um and at the who time are, who are some of the people who influenced you in that respect yeah, I mean, when I like really decided to dive into all this I was reading a lot of Terence McKenna um i 
grew up reading Allen Ginsberg and Bill Burroughs. They were like my heroes through like, like much of my life. Now I am not sure I would call them my heroes just because I've learned so much about them now that I see that, you know, there's not like, nobody is perfect. So I wouldn't uh, hold up any of these people now as like role models, right? But at the time, those were, those were um, a lot of, I mean, I was reading uh, Aldous Huxley, The Doors of Perception. A lot of this is, is just like the classic like drug propaganda that goes around our culture, you know, like, and I, I mean, like, my dad read the doors of perception, like in the 50s, when he was my age, you know, like, this is not even anything new. Um, so I, you know, I was just like, a, another kid uh, trying to get high in America, you know, it's not really too unique. But um, I was exposed to all these figures. And at that time in my life, I was consciously turning away from the music industry. So I was actually kind of like raised in the music business, um, played and performed for over a decade in and around DC with a bunch of different bands. Eventually I got kind of fed up with the music scene and I needed to turn my life in a, a different direction. And um, I happened to be very interested in the drugs and I saw that there were uh, a number of other figures out there who had made careers out of it and that's what was close to my heart um and for whatever crazy reason I just decided to jump into it and even though uh friends and family were concerned like is this like really what you want to be spending your time on like what's going on here um very soon like so just to fast forward a little bit I mean I you know was was reading all the, these books and doing drugs as a teenager and stuff but I um, when I did actually get around to starting a DC psychedelic society, which is a harm reduction and education group uh, in DC that I started six years ago. We aren't really too active these days. We have the occasional potluck and meeting and stuff. But back when I first started the group, um, very quickly, we gained a lot of attention, a lot of traction, hundreds of members on Facebook within like a couple of weeks, a few days, even it was like just it was like a mushroom cloud like there was a really wide demand for this. And as soon as I announced that I was willing to be the guy to talk to about it, tons of people were saying, oh, my gosh, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about this. So. And uh, I, what's what I, I think I I mentioned this in our last talk, but the um, and this has changed now that it's gotten really big. But like a few years ago, and it's you know I'm sure if you go back in history, it was even more so. Um, the scene of people who have dedicated their time to this, it is kind of like a small-ish crowd. So pretty quickly, it's it's easy to. Um, get introduced to a lot of movers and takers and some pretty big names. So I guess I'm saying all this to say that this all just basically confirmed my suspicions that like, even though drugs are taboo, actually, there's a very wide interest in them. A lot of people don't think of them as taboo, and they actually want to talk about them. Um, and yeah, we had 
huge meetings like uh the first year or two we would have a meeting and a special event each month and um they all, almost always would draw a, a pretty good crowd and there were always lots of people who wanted to talk about the psychedelics and drugs and the history of all this and the politics of it and where it's going and the medicine and the science and whatnot so um if anything i just kind of like tapped into like a cultural thing that was already happening you know um it's really not anything too unique about myself i you know i oh yeah i i could say more but i guess that's kind of like in a nutshell kind of uh i don't know if that answers your question kind of sort of when did you start to clue in to the op like when did you start to figure out that the books that had inspired you were in fact propaganda yeah okay so um it was a it well it it is a process i mean arguably i'm still figuring it all out uh but um just to give some some background for people like like before i started to to study this angle of it i had read here and there about how the cia used acid and mind control experiments during the cold war and they deleted all the documents and all that right and i i I thought it was an interesting quirk of history, but I didn't really think there was that much to it. And every now and then as I was getting the psych society going, I would hear people be like, aren't you concerned about like the history of the CIA and all this and the fact that the government like kind of was running all this back in the day and all this kind of stuff. And I would just kind of like, like laugh it off and be like, oh, you know, like you're just seeing your own enemies. Like you got to, like manifest positivity and all that, all that crap, you know what I mean? And I just didn't want to think about it, even though I had been exposed to it. Um, and in fact, there's this book out there that I highly recommend called Acid Dreams by, you're, you're nodding, I'm assuming that you've, you, you are, you, you know it, um, by Martin Lee and Bruce Plain. And, um, uh, I had actually read that book, I don't know, as like a teenager or in college or something. And even though almost the whole book is about the connections between the acid scene and the CIA, I managed to read the book the whole way through and just totally tune out all the CIA stuff, which I manage is what a lot of people do like when they read this stuff. Um, I think I did the exact same thing. I read it yeah. in college as well. Like I yeah. didn't make the connection then. Yeah, yeah it was like, Ooh, Tim Leary, like the Grateful Dead, like cool. I was reading about all that stuff and uh, the CIA, blah, 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 Alan Dulles. Okay, whatever. I, I, I didn't really know like what it meant or why it would matter, you know, but um, when it really started to change, right? To, to get to your question. So I started the group in 2017 uh, and in 2018, after we had been around for only about a year or so, I heard that MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies that I'm sure many of our listeners are already well aware of, I heard the news that they had just taken a million dollars from the Mercer, the Mercer family. And for people who are not aware, the Mercers were very large donors of Trump's 2016 campaign. Uh, the patriarch of the family, I, I, 
I, I don't know if it was through IBM or one of the other big computer companies, but they made their money in the tech boom in, in the, the 80s and the 90s, and they're extraordinarily rich, and their political donors, extremely conservative, arguably fascist, and they were very considerable backers that helped get Trump into office. And um, when I learned the information, it almost didn't compute at first, but after I sat with it for even just like, well, I learned it in, at a conference and it was all developing pretty rapidly. So we were all talking about it. And I, 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 I realized over time that this was confirming like, well, anyway, I'll just, I'm going down a rabbit hole, but to keep it to your question. So that was like kind of the first of the light bulbs where I was like, wait a minute, this is, this is not right. Like, why are they taking money from Trump's donors to try to medicalize MDMA for like world peace and all this stuff? It's just, I was like, whoa, this is, this is weird. And, but that, but of course, to anyone who is familiar with what MAPS is doing, they've been working with the Department of Defense and the Drug Enforcement Administration since their beginning. I mean, their whole the whole purpose of MAPS is to craft a government-approved pathway for these drugs to reach the market. And with almost with almost every single case in history of a popular drug, that pathway to market has been paved by the military. So the fact that it's happening again with MDMA. You know, at the time, I didn't know all the history to put this in place, but I, I just it just felt wrong to me. Um, and that kind of put me on alert and I began to pay attention. I mean, there were already were things here and there I had heard about the scene that were kind of bothering me, but that was a really big one. What um, were some of the other things that were bothered that just weren't sitting right with you? Um, well, I mean, uh, there's a pretty long history of abuse that happens while people are under the influence of LSD, ayahuasca, ketamine, I mean, any drug, right? Alcohol, like, like people will use any drug out there to manipulate and abuse other people. Um, but with the drugs that we refer to as psychedelics, even though there's this cultural aura of like positivity and healing around them, um, if you spend time around people who like, well, I, I don't want to extrapolate to others. What happened to me is I just was hearing about um, uh, people who had been physically abused by uh, the leaders of like ayahuasca circles and all that kind of stuff. And it is becoming more documented now. I mean, if you, if people go search, uh, abuse ayahuasca for example there's more material out there now which is good because we need to talk about it but we still haven't like figured out a real answer for that problem but that's one and then i had also heard um just vague kind of comments about like uh where the money was coming from but like maybe people wouldn't drop explicit names but like, like maybe I, like there would just be hints about, oh yeah, well, they're considering certain donors that are not cool. And I, it just would be kind of like, well, like, what does that mean? You know? And at first I didn't really have anything substantial to connect it to, but over time, as I started to hear more, and then 
I took it upon myself to really study the history and go back and like I went back and read Acid Dreams again from cover to cover and this time I made sure to pay attention to every single thing about the CIA and it was almost like I was reading a totally different book and um, Acid Dreams is a, 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 a good one and it definitely had an impact on me I mean I've read it at this point three-ish times uh it's i highly recommend it for anyone who's trying to understand the history of the connection between the psychedelics and the government and the military and all this kind of stuff um but then as far as other specific things that happen so uh i mean like one thing that was interesting to me is like when the pandemic hit i noticed that a lot of the new psychedelic companies made their IPOs on Wall Street. But meanwhile, like I lost my job because the pandemic, you know, with the shutdown and stuff. And I wasn't the only one. So in in my circle who went through that. So I noticed, like, for example, okay, there's a huge economic shift happening right now. And the people like myself who have been on the ground, like putting in the hours, having conversations with people um to really do the groundwork to make this change possible we're getting laid off and the people who don't even know what they're talking about who happen to have inherited like a few million dollars from their rich parents are making even more millions of dollars now on uh these products that they don't even really understand and it it, it kind of hit me as like okay this is it it I guess it was a moment when I realized how quickly this all was moving in a direction that was clearly not beneficial for the public. <laughs> and that was when I I really decided to like just buckle down. And um, at that point I, I was already working on my last book, Drugism, which uh, there's excerpts and stuff out there for people who wanna read it, but uh, originally the last chapter in drugism was going to be about how people in power use drugs both on themselves and on other people or how they manipulate the policy or the markets and whatnot but as i began to research that i realized there's no way i could fit a comprehensive story of that into just one chapter and i realized it needed its own book so that's what i'm almost done with now uh is my next book which is called high and mighty how people in power use drugs and Great i mean title. that uh, is a fantastic you. title thank you i appreciate that um and yeah so i you know as i said it was originally going to be the the last chapter of my last book so in that sense i've already been working on it for three four five years now uh but i published drugism a year ago so for the last year i've been just totally devoted to to finishing this book and um as comprehensively as possible understanding the history of the relationship between various governments and drug markets both legal and illegal and how that relates to the political history and all this kind of all all this kind of stuff so i hope you know i i don't know if that if that kind of answers yeah, it's helpful. I have like a million questions, so I'm going to yeah. oh, do totally. my best to, to take. Yeah, I'm happy to answer as many as we can fit in, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, I mean, 
slowing it down why the military specifically okay. okay so in a nutshell it's because the military in any given state or empire or nation has historically often acted as the um, the motor of economic activity and there's tons of different like reasons for this uh, there's books and books and books and books written about this but um uh i mean arguably what it boils down to is especially capitalism and a lot of other um uh political and economic systems that have existed through history particularly in the west although it's true all over the world um uh they have almost all been based upon war as a means to expand their their access to trade their access to people their control of land so this is actually the case for not only drugs but many industries actually if you examine their history you'll find that they they experience boom cycles after being affiliated with like like military technology or something mm -hmm. um and uh with the drugs i argue that this traces back to salt so um this is gonna it might sound totally random to people but uh for those those listeners who have read some of my my material may be familiar with the history of, of salt which um uh to tie it to warfare and the the boom cycles and all that so the word soldier actually derives from the the french word for salt uh because historically in Europe and in ancient Rome and I believe in ancient China and probably throughout much of the rest of the world um troops and militaries have been paid with salt uh, especially when there isn't enough hard currency to go around and there's actually there's multiple reasons for this um the direct application to warfare is that troops that have so uh troops that have been fed salt uh will generally be more nourished more more active they'll have more energy to fight they'll last longer additionally salt actually it dehydrates food which helps the food rations last longer this was a huge part of its use in history was to preserve food so it, 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 it not only did salt actually provide an immediate boost upon the consumption, but it helps to preserve the food rations, which for military ventures was extremely important. Um, and for all of these reasons and more, we see time and time again in a lot of the world's largest empires that during times of war, the salt supply would be reserved for the military. And uh, the, the state or the governing body would would make sure to secure a supply of salt that would last the troops to get through whatever war or military campaign they were doing at the moment and then any salt that was left over from the military uh would be what was allowed for the general population and um this trend of conserving salt to be used in the military 
and at the same time so like often when this would happen there would actually be a ration on the amount of salt that would be available for sale to the public um and then after the war was over uh the salt ration would end the troops would come back home oftentimes the troops would be loaded with salt because they would have been receiving the military rations of salt that all the salt had been reserved for and wars and militaries would in this sense act as a marker of kind of like state control over a market and that, that might sound really abstract but to make it more concrete for people so um this practice began in ancient china um it was then replicated in ancient rome and then a lot of the early nations and kingdoms in what we know as europe also would do this and what's interesting is that we find um as the most popular drugs enter into global consumption often uh a they become popular during wars and b this is often because the military itself serves as a vector for the drug um and this okay so on the one hand we have the same thing going on with salt where we have the government actually during times of war will create or hoard a stockpile of drugs to be used for the military. And then uh, the troops will be given priority in access to drugs, often the most important drugs. And then, so in that sense, you have a kind of state created um, levy that kind of keeps the drugs close to the military so that during warfare, the troops can maintain themselves and be healthy and nourished and continue to fight. But on the other hand, it goes back to the main purpose of warfare to begin with, which is the primary function of wars as the motor of our e e e e economy. And it, it, it often serves to expand the array of commodities that an empire or nation has access to. So uh, like, for example, the common thing in like the recent history that a lot of people will be familiar with is the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and the oil and um, it, 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 with Ukraine now there's tons of resources over there and we were kind of talking about some of this in our last call with Emily but the reason this has to do with drugs is because often when a given empire or nation first becomes exposed to a particular drug it's through a military campaign or warfare um, like, for example, the Crusades in Europe uh, functioned as a, uh, a way that the Catholic population in Europe was exposed to the, the drugs and the medical sciences of the various Arabic kingdoms that they were trying to convert, which at the time were much more advanced. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of the Arabic doctors had figured out various formulas for opium and hashish and even cane sugar that were just not available to Europe at the time. 
And it was only through the violent conquest of those populations that the Europeans then learned about these drugs and then incorporated them into their own trade cycles. So you have kind of like all these different um, directions upon which war kind of serves as like a vehicle for the popularization of drugs. Um, again, I would say it goes back to salt, but you'll find the same trend with like opioids or during World War One, it was uh, cocaine. During World War II, it was amphetamines, like the speed that not only the Nazis and the Japanese, but also the US troops and the British, they, all of them were on speed during World War II. And most militaries to this day use some form of amphetamine uh, that is available to troops in active combat to keep them alert on the field. Um, so, I mean, historically, there are just so many forces that play into this. And then as for specifically with like the LSD and the MDMA and stuff like that, arguably uh, the war that gave rise to those drugs was the Cold War. Uh, which was kind of like the battle of the mind and the ideology that the various hemispheres would subscribe to. And um, in much the same way that various wars th through history have served to popularize the use of, of particular drugs, LSD uh, was popularized specifically in the context of the Cold War with Russia and China, in which there was an explicit a desire among like not only the US government, but the Russian government um, and others to figure out how to use drugs as truth serums, um, as behavior modification agents, any kind of way that they could uh, gain an advantage on their enemy. And this, what's interesting is that if, you know, like uh, in going back and reading the, the, the documents for this, they were interested in drugs that could be used not only on the battlefield, but off the battlefield as well uh, to influence a civilian population, for example. So, and this is all documented, um, but anyway, so yeah, I'm kind of rambling, but, and I'm, I'm happy if there's specific things you want to dig into or, you know. Um, yeah, I'm, I, thank you so much. Your breadth of knowledge on this is just, it's fantastic. It's fascinating. It's illuminating in the way that like, salt was given to the soldiers for their own health, for their own food preservation, is our military giving psychedelics to our soldiers? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so, okay, so this actually, oh, I'm glad you brought that up because this brings up another very crucial, what was for me personally a, a turning point in my relationship with this whole, uh, industry you know i i don't even want to call it a movement because it's but anyway um to, to answer your question yes the u.s military has already engaged in giving mdma to active duty troops and u.s military personnel have stated in public that their goal in the use of mdma for active duty troops is to extend the window of operability that a troop has on the battlefield. In other words, if some dude goes over anywhere, uh, a few years ago it was Afghanistan, but now it could be like Ukraine or anywhere that the military, uh, like as uh, for folks who may say, oh, but the US doesn't have troops over there. Well, there is an Operation Atlantic Resolve going on. 
a few thousand troops were just mobilized to Europe as part of that. But um, excuse me. Oh my God. Yeah. Yikes. But all good. <laughs> um, so I actually learned this in 2017. It was crazy because it was it was so soon after I started the group. I this was one of the pieces of information that I I learned and. Uh, for some context is um, uh, I had become involved in what was essentially like a multi-continent, like multi-group um, online talk that was given to a bunch of different groups all over the US and Australia. There may have been a couple in Europe um, by Rick Doblin and Dennis McKenna. And um, during Rick's talk, he, he mentioned this, which was, he said, he was explaining what MAPS has been up to lately and how the cultural climate toward MDMA is changing and the FDA has been showing more approval toward these therapies. And he said, um, and it, it turns out that MAPS, MAPS recently learned that the military has performed studies with active duty troops and MDMA. And Rick said that they learned that as an accident, as if they weren't supposed to know this information. But he, he said all this proudly. I, um, and I've seen since in other talks, he, he has said this in other talks from the same time period. So it's, I, I don't believe that this was just a casual comment that entered his mind that he felt like sharing. I think this was a piece of information that he made a point to share with not only my audience, but other audiences. And this is documented. Um, uh, it's documented on YouTube, actually. There's a talk from the talk that Rick and Dennis gave for all the psychedelic groups where he says this. And then there's also an article uh, that was written recently by um, Russell Hausfeld. Um, I forget, I, I wanna say the name of the publication is Truth Dig, but he did a piece that was like a very brief little expose on how Rick has made comments about, oh yes, the military has told us that they're already giving MDMA to active duty troops, but we're not supposed to know this and that's all I know. And then he talks about some other stuff. And um, he just, he dropped that into this talk about like, oh, we're gonna achieve MDMA medicalization. It's gonna be great. We're gonna solve PTSD, all this kind of stuff. And again, at the time, I didn't really know enough to plug this all in, but as I learned more, that stuck out to me as a moment where it was kind of like, this is really weird. Like, and um, so to answer your question anyway, yeah, that, yes, that has already happened. Rick said that it's under the auspices of like a study and he says that he was not supposed to know about it, but the military has a long history of doing all kinds of stuff under the auspices of like a study or an experiment that are actively contributing to combat. Um, I mean, this has been documented at least since World War II, if not earlier. So like that was a huge turning point as well for me and just a, a huge clue that 
this is still going on right now. This isn't like some Cold War artifact of history that the military used to do this kind of stuff. Like I can tell you as an organizer, Rick Doblin said at one of our events that the military was giving MDMA to active duty troops. And this was within the last few years. So like do with that information what you will, you know? But that was one of like many other things that just got me down this path. And, you know, so yeah, there's a lot to it. Um, and, and then I, we of course talked in our last episode about how there's a new uh, essentially astroturf that has emerged in Ukraine that is lobbying the Ukrainian government to create a private sector for psychedelic drugs over there that is actually connected to state officials and private sector people and Wall Street people and pharma people from the here that are working with the psychedelics and stuff. So yeah, I mean, it's all, there's, there's a lot going on right now, um, but uh, don't expect to see it spelled out for us in the New York Times or the Washington Post, you know? No, that's why you're here. <laughs> yeah. All right, so I'm gonna combine, this is gonna be a few questions in one, cause I have, this happened the last time we spoke, like my mind is just yeah. firing on so yeah. many different yeah. levels, which I love about talking to you. So I know from my studies of propaganda, that yeah. propaganda was created to generate public support for war, right? So our government slash military propagandizes its own people so that they will support wars. So I'm wondering if, if this like um, military embrace of psychedelics is only relegated to active duty participants or if they're also deploying them on the public in the same way they do with their you know their frequencies and lily waves and you know those other things and i'm also wondering how this um stands up to the recent uptick in the like microdosing conversation which is you know so hip among silicon valley tech folk and otherwise you know conservative types who wouldn't otherwise dip their toes into the psychedelic realms yeah oh totally um so as for your first question as far as like we see how the military would have an interest in this for use on the battlefield or with troops but do they have an interest in this among the general population as it results to warfare um, I would argue, yes, uh, although this is, I mean, it's, it's hotly contested, even though there's a lot of documentation out there. And um, again, I would encourage folks to check out Acid Dreams, uh, but there's tons of books at this point that have been written about this. One that's more recent that I also highly recommend is um, Poisoner in Chief by Stephen Kinzer which is about Sid Gottlieb, who was the director of the MKUltra program for the, the CIA. And um, I mean, it's, it, it's tough because there are documents that the military was actively engaging in experimenting on the public with drugs in the 50s and the 60s. In the 70s, uh, a number of things happened. Um, the church committee, the Rockefeller commission, a number of other things, uh, 
essentially what happened is that the public gains knowledge of what the government had been doing with these drugs. And ever since then, um, the military industrial complex has been much more discreet with the information that they allow into the public about all this. So whereas we do have documents from like the 50s and the 60s um, explaining that the government has an active interest in, for example, like um, after World War II, uh, a number of top personnel in the military were working with the big pharmaceutical companies like Merck to, to develop drugs that could incapacitate without killing people. And it's, uh, it's one thing to see how that would be used on, on the battlefield, but I, what's also interesting to get to your question is as time goes on, there's actually substantial evidence that this was essentially applied to, to the general population. Now, um, I guess I'm gonna, I will, I guess say that like what I'm about to say is my argument that I work toward in the book. But again, a lot of the documents about this have been destroyed. A lot of the, the, the people who control the money like behind this have been very quiet about their roles in all of this. So it's very difficult to, um, to say that we know, for example, what the motivations were of various people who were involved in, in the drug scene. But what's interesting is like, if we examine, for example, Timothy Leary or like any number, like <laughs> there's, there's still, this is going on now, but Tim Leary is just a good one because a lot of people will know his name already. But like, if one starts to examine who he was connected to, how he met the people who allowed him to get big in the field, uh, the history of even his own family. Like, okay, so actually Tim Leary is a really good kind of like um, case study in the relationship between the military and the psychedelic scene because Tim himself insisted that he was actually conceived on a military base, specifically at, at West Point. Now, he was born at West Point, And in his memoir, he thinks that he was conceived there. Like, he thinks his parents actually knocked themselves up, like, at West Point, and that he was actually uh, ushered into this world in a military base. Mm-hmm. Which I just want to pause on that because it speaks volumes to like all the information that we can then learn about him, which he actually served in the military during World War II. And it was on the GI Bill, uh, which was a bill passed by the federal government that gave aid to troops returning from World War II and in general going forward that they, to help them go to school. And this has long been hotly contested as a mechanism 
that the government uses to essentially um, incentivize people to join the military because then they'll pay for your education afterward. Uh, but this traces back more or less to World War II. And that was actually how Tim Leary got into school to study psychology was through the GI Bill after his time in the military during World War II, which is interesting. And then um, if we look, for example, at like uh, key moments in the, the popularization of acid in the 60s, a lot of which were tied to Leary in various ways, um, they often have very strange connections to the intelligence community and the military and um like for example uh the human being which occurred in san francisco california in the late 60s it's often like referred to as a historic event in kind of the evolution of the counterculture in the u.s and the birth of the hippie identity but um the people who organized the conference were connected to a elite family that had people in the CIA that had been involved in diplomacy and espionage. Um, and what's interesting is like, if we look to the behavior of the organizers of the human being, for example, like at the human being, Tim Leary was there as one of the main speakers and he openly and very clearly urged people to not get involved with politics and um, that he, he basically implied that politics was something for savage people and that if you were truly enlightened, you did not concern yourself with such matters and you would just spend all day getting high and fucking. And after the conference, um, like one of the main organizers of the BN was quoted as saying that the conference was to some extent a disappointment because Jerry Rubin, who was the infamous of, uh, activist known with the yuppies and Abby Hoffman, after the BN, he still identified as a Marxist. So according to one of the organizers of the BN, the festival did not really do what it was intended to do. Because mm -hmm. Jerry Rubin is still a Marxist, dang it. We thought, you know, it's like he didn't out, like that, that part he said, but what is implied is that the event was intended to like distract the activists from the politics and get them into the drugs and the music. Right the more one digs into this period, there's just tons of clues like this. And I could go on and on for hours about all this kind of stuff where um, it's kind of like I said earlier, as I was learning about it, where it's like just one thing here and there might not mean much if you don't really know the history to plug it into. So it's easy to dismiss for people who are new to this. But if you've been exposed to, to more and more of these and you know the history of the US and you're concerned about politics, all this stuff should be raising red flags. 
And it was for me, and there, I mean, there's just tons of examples of this throughout the history of psychedelics. And this kind of stuff is still going on now, I would argue. And my book is is going to be full of all the evidence I've gathered in favor of that argument. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to answer more. I hope that kind of, oh, your question about the microdosing. Okay. Wait, can we pause the microdosing, which I do want to come back to, yeah, yeah. because what you just said validates something that I've been watching for the past couple of weeks, and I've been talking to both Emily and Robert Forte about it, is, so I keep my eye on Aubrey Marcus, and I definitely, you know, it's like, and one of my other questions is like, where do nootropics tie into this? Because he, you know, has a foot in both worlds. And I see how these people who are into nootropics are also propagandizing the psychedelic community. And he recently, and the other piece that I see about that are these bromances that seem to be formed in shared psychedelic journeys, right? So many ways that these substances are being used to control and co-opt. And I recently saw an interview that Aubrey did with Robert Edward Grant. Do you know who that is? Robert Edward Grant. Oh, I think you got me on that one. I, I... He's being propped up. I mean, he's, when I hear him speak, he's very intelligent. He's very wise. He has a lot of hermetic wisdom. He's a polymath, right? So he knows a lot about mathematics and science and astrology and numerology. And I'm like, wait a minute, what is a pol like what we call a modern day polymath is someone who's high up in secret societies like we it's all the stuff that they teach in secret societies and who decides to go through all these courses of study except people who are Masons or Rosicrucians or whatever they may be. And so they were doing this podcast about hermetic wisdom. And I wasn't suspicious until I was suspicious. And they said, don't get involved in politics. It's all in your mind. There's nothing outside mm -hmm. to fix. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, let's get everyone to be apathetic and take yeah. no action while we mind fuck them and steer our world onto like really fucked territory. Totally. That's a very great observation. It's interesting that you caught that. It also confirms that I, I guess this uh, this notion is out there still. Again, it's hard to say like what the motive is for this, but even if we look at just objectively how it functions in the broader like landscape, I, I don't think it's a positive one. Um, but yeah, that's a great observation. It's very interesting. Um, um, I think we can see it in the past few years. Like, I mean, yeah. if, I live in a very small town and okay. there are so many people here who know what's going on but they're just in the love and light cherry Mary sunshine. I'm just creating my own reality and listening to Esther Hicks. And it's like, well, if we had banded together, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have gone as far as it has. It just creates yeah. more and more apathetic acquiescing individuals yeah. who aren't standing up for their freedom. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. Um, a couple different things that that brings up for me, uh, for tuning in to this latest episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. I am reminding slash thanking you to and for... <laughs> 
clicking that subscribe button, for liking, for sharing, for commenting, and for leaving some kind words as a review as you are authentically inspired. As you are receiving any value from my podcast, as you dig it, as you listen regularly, consider supporting me on Patreon and or Locals, where for as little as $5 a month, you get access to all of my second half podcast interviews, as well as oodles of bonus content. Your support really goes a long way in supporting me as a journalist and an independent content creator navigate her way through a really crunchy time in terms of free speech. And as you are wanting to learn more about my work in the world, my books, my products, my quantum languaging, coaching, and consulting, you can find me at dannycats.com as well as quantumlanguaging.com. And if you're not down with a membership patronage platform and want to send me one-time donation, You can use the Bitcoin link if it actually appears on your podcast listening platform. You could also send me a one-time donation by way of PayPal at dannycats at pm.me or by way of Venmo where my username is Sadie Bloom. Again, your support means the world and makes a massive, massive difference when it comes to continuing to share this work with the world. Thank you for sharing your sacred attention with me. Thank you for remembering that you are omniscopic amazingness and for having a rockin' day. See you next time, superstars.